This sermon, A Song for the Ages, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, January 21st, 2024, at Sovereign Grace Church. Good morning, church. If you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here. My name is Derek Overstreet. I have the privilege to be one of the pastors. Uh, As Tom was praying, I thought, boy, we don't know these people these churches, they're part of our family of churches. Uh, they are advancing the gospel, but we don't know them. We pray for them today, but we don't know them. But I thought, no, one day though, <laughs> we will be blessing the Lord with all our souls <laughs> together, unified, joining in the heavenly hosts who exist for one purpose. To bless the Lord, oh my soul. We get to see him one day. We get to meet them one day. But more than that, we get to meet them in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Well, would you open your Bibles to Judges 5? If you're visiting with us, we are preaching through the book of Judges from beginning to end. Um, And if you missed last week, this sermon might not make as much sense as it would if you would have been here last week. Uh, Last week I mentioned that really uh, the story of Deborah and Barak is, it's two parts. Chapter four is the story in prose, if you will, and chapter five is the story in poetry. It's a song. It's the same event communicated in two different ways. For those of you who are sports fans, Uh, You might say that Judges 4 was the play-by-play, and now Judges 5 is the color commentary. So that's where we are at. We are in the second part of the story of Deborah and Barak. We're going to read the entire uh, chapter 5 together. So if you will stand, and let's read God's Word together. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, this day, the day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel." Lord, when you went from Seir, it, when, when you went from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I rose. I, Deborah, rose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys and you who sit on rich carpets and you who walk by the way. 
to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down march the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord march down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they march down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Mekir, march down the commanders. And, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, they were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. The kings, they fought then fought the kings of Canaan. At Taanach by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From the courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kaishan swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishan, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed woman be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials and embroidered two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years." May be seated. Lord, this is your word. We ask that you cause it to bear fruit in our hearts. Help me to be faithful as the preacher of your word and help your people to be faithful listeners that we all together might hear and do and be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we get a surprise. Out of the dark and despairing stories of Judges arises this exuberant song of thanksgiving. 
It's a surprise, but really, it shouldn't be. A song in the middle of Judges should not be a surprise to us because God's people, God's people were created to sing. God's people are compelled by the very nature of God to sing. Indeed, in his word, God's people are commanded to sing. Singing is and has always been a mark of belonging to God. Barry Webb, in his commentary on Judges 5, says, Have you ever noticed how important singing is in the Bible? Both the Old and New Testaments are punctuated with songs. The singing starts in Exodus 15 after God saved Israel from the pursuing army of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. And it goes right through to the new song of the book of Revelation that goes on forever and ever. And right in the middle, in the largest book of the whole Bible, there are no fewer than 150 songs. The book of Psalms Psalms is the hymn book of the Old Testament people of God. So singing is central to biblical religion. He goes on, it has also been one of the most outstanding characteristics of Christianity for more than 2,000 years. The singing of psalms was a distinguishing feature of Christian worship from the beginning, and the book of Psalms has provided the inspiration for countless Christian hymns. Singing God's praises is a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And every outpouring of the Spirit in revival blessing has been accompanied by a flood of new songs. This is what he says. Such singing is not the cotton candy of the Christian life. It's the steak and vegetables, or at least the vegetables, a standard part of the main course. Of all the major world religions, only Christianity has congregational singing at its heart. Judges 5 is a song. It's a song sung by God's people. It's a song about God's people, God's power, and God's purposes. It's a heart response. It's their heart response to their salvation that the Lord has delivered for them. And now 3,000 years later, we get to sing this song with them. This morning, our goal is not to touch on every part of this song, but what we do address, my prayer is that our affections for our Savior and one another will be stirred and stoked in fresh and powerful ways. If you're looking for the point today, it's this. Knowing our Savior has won the victory, we love God and one another with enthusiastic gratitude. Knowing our Savior, Jesus Christ, has won the victory ultimately. We we pursue and love God and one another with an abandon, with with an enthusiastic gratitude. Let, Let the culture call us extremists. Let the neighbor give us funny looks. Let some around us even feel uncomfortable. So what? Our Savior and His people are worthy of our affection and thanksgiving. And I hope that that is the effect today. Three points this morning that I loaded to earlier. Praise the Lord for His people. This song finds Deborah and Barak praising the Lord for His people, praising the Lord for His power, and praising the Lord for His 
purpose, namely his salvation. So let's look at this first point. Praise the Lord for his people. This song is a song of celebration and praise to God for his deliverance. That is inescapable. Notice verse 3 says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Deborah and Brock's song is unmistakably vertical. It is upward. But the vertical includes the horizontal. It, It doesn't leave that out. Last week we, we saw, and we've even sang about it, thank you for the songs that were chosen today. Boy, did they not capture the truths that came out of Judges 4 last week, where we saw that, that God desires participants, not spectators, in his redemptive purposes. God wants you and I, as individuals and collectively as a local church, to He wants to use us to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Simply put, you matter. You matter in God's mission. You have a part to play in God's mission. And this song in Judges 5 highlights that truth. As they sing about God's people while they're singing to God. They they are celebrating how the people willingly offered themselves to God's purposes. And they praise the Lord specifically for them. Notice how this song goes. Notice verse 2. Look at how it begins. That the leaders took the lead in Israel. That the people offered themselves willingly. Do you see that? Now, if you go down to verse 9... It continues, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Look down at verse 12. And by the way, we're not going to go through this chronologically. We're going to be jumping around. So try, try, hopefully you can stay with me. Verse 12, look what it says. Awake, Deborah, break out in a song. And then notice what happens. There's this roll call of everyone who made who willingly made themselves part of God's purposes. Notice what it says in verse 14. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir, marched down the, the commanders. Makir was, 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 was a, a clan that was probably part of West Manasseh. And from Zebulun, those who hear, the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. So you see later on in verse 18, Naphtali is mentioned. And so what you see is Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, Naphtali, Issachar, Zebulun, six tribes, six tribes celebrated. Why? Because they recruited soldiers. They united with one another And they risked their lives. Some of them no doubt lost their lives to be used in the hands of God. There is this celebration in a prayer that is very upward, but begins and throughout goes horizontal to celebrate what God's people have done. Now, 
there are some tribes that chose to be spectators in God's purposes. They stayed home. They watched the battle from afar. They weighed out the costs. That's what it means when said Reuben was searching their hearts. Should we do this? What would it mean for us? Should we sit this one out? In verses 15 through 17, they're named, they're rebuked, they're challenged, as they should be. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, patiently rebuke the idol. That, that, this song reflects that reality. But even more, Deborah and Barak celebrated God's work in those who joined in by showing affection for and thanksgiving in their hearts for God's people. Now notice verse 2 again. Notice what it says there. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. And did you notice the phrase? Bless the Lord. You find that phrase at the end of, I believe, verse 9 as well. Bless the Lord. What, what does that mean? When we tend to think of blessing someone, we tend to think of contributing to their well-being. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you something that, that, that will advance you in some way, that, that will maybe, maybe move you to a place that you are not. Well, we can't do that with God. God is sufficient in and of himself. No one and nothing can, can make God anything other than he is already in and of himself. So what does that mean? Well, when you see that phrase in your Bible, it means simply this. To bless the Lord is to magnify God's greatness, his goodness, and his glory. In other words, it means to exalt him. It means to lift him up for all to see. And that's important. That's important because it acknowledges even in this song, that God is the source of the people's faithfulness. God is the source of their courage. He is the source of their willingness to serve. And we have to keep that straight, lest we become man-centered. We can't deny the, 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 the presence of God's people being celebrated. They're in a song. This is a song about God's salvation, and look how many lines are given to the people who participated in that. We can't ignore that. That can become man-centered. We can understand and apply that wrongly. And so we have to attach that phrase, bless the Lord. How do we do this just practically? I, 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 it didn't start with me. I think I heard it from somebody somewhere along the way. But if somebody encourages me for what I do, whatever that might be, I look for a way to deflect. I'm looking for a bless the Lord. And for me, it's simple. If you encourage me for my preaching, you'll probably hear me say, I get the joy of preaching. I get the joy of participating in God's mission by preaching. But God gets the glory. In other words, however you were blessed through what I did, bless the Lord. <laughs> Bless the Lord. It doesn't mean that you don't encourage me. It means that ultimately, ultimately God gets the glory for that. And this is important. This is important because 
some people have this unbiblical notion, and it is unbiblical, that we can't celebrate and acknowledge God's goodness and grace through Christ in one another. There are some people, there's no place for that. There's no place for that. Well, Deborah and Barak would say wrong. In fact, Paul would say wrong. Read his letters. There's not a letter he didn't pin where at some point in time he did not go out of his way to recognize Christ in those that are in the church. He, he lavished. He lavished praises on God's people. He, he celebrated Christ in them every time he thought about them. If Paul was here today... And you served him, even if that was just standing at the door as a greeter and, and, and giving him a smile. I think Paul would have said, you know what? I see Christ in your smile. Paul was looking for Christ in his people. And when Deborah and Barak considered the faith-filled courage of God's people, they celebrated them. They celebrated them in a way that ultimately praised God and exalted him above them. But they did not forego celebrating them. So let me ask you a question. Well, what comes to your mind when you think about your church's leaders? When you think about your church's volunteers? Or just when you think about anybody in this room who serves you? No matter how big no matter how small, no, how, no matter how public, no matter how private. What comes to your mind? Jealousy? I wish I would lead in that ministry. Criticism? Boy, you know, I, I could do a much better job if I were serving there. Indifference, who cares about that ministry? Well, what comes to your mind? What, what do you think about? That those are all sinful attitudes that need to be repented of and replaced with Christ-centered thanksgiving and encouragement. You see, the truth is, Deborah and Barak could have sung about the greatness and the power of God without ever mentioning anyone else. And they would have been okay. Because God is always the hero, right? That's what we've been saying in Judges. We see amazing things done by brave people who are sold out for the mission and purposes of God. But we realize at the end of every story, the invisible hand of God was at work. God is always the hero. But as the old hymn goes, and you know it, God works in mysterious ways. That's not just in nature, which is the primary context of that, that, those words, but it includes accomplishing his purposes through weak and inadequate people that he loves, that he has saved, and by saving them that he has invited indeed compelled by irresistible grace to join in on his mission. 
Why? Well, I think in part so that we get the joy of participating in a heavenly mission and he receives the glory uniquely. He receives the glory through an unknown guy named Shamgar who kills 600 Philistines with a farm tool. That is undeniably God. And yet the Bible holds Shamgar up as a savior of God's people. So listen, the implication, the implication is serious for us. Just let me put this to you. If God loves to magnify his goodness and greatness through the efforts of his people, but we refuse to acknowledge and celebrate God's grace in one another, well, logic says that we refuse to acknowledge and celebrate God in a way that he desires us to celebrate him. Because this song, and when we, when we celebrate God's grace in a brother or sister's life, we are ultimately celebrating God's grace, his work, his handiwork, Ephesians 2, his powerful work. Listen, I, I would just submit to you this, especially if you're in that category of struggling with helping people see Christ at work in them. I would submit to you with this question, is there any more significant way I can love you? Any more significant way that I can love you than reminding you in intentional and specific, relevant ways of the abundance of God's grace that I see in your life? I would submit no. Because in doing that, I take your eyes off of yourself and I set your eyes on Christ. So if you're wondering, okay, well, how do I cultivate this discipline of encouragement? There, Billy Rays, who's the, the lead senior pastor at our church in Midland, Texas, he came out years ago and did a, did a marriage retreat. It was wonderful. By the way, I can't wait for the marriage retreat at the end of March, so be looking for that email. But, you know, he, 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 he took a pair of glasses, and he had glued on two foam crosses, onto one on each lens. And the interesting thing is when you put that on, there's two crosses, but it, 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 it kind of creates this illusion of one cross. And he said, that's the Christian life. We live life because we see life through the lens of the cross, And when we see one another through the lens of the gospel, then it leads us to celebrating God's grace in their lives. It moves us away from the critical spirit and away from the self-righteous judgments and away from their inadequacies. Not that we ignore those, but it moves us to see them as they are in Christ, forgiven and loved targets of divine affections. It it helps us 
to love one another. It, it stirs our affections. I would submit to you since, for those of you who make New Year's resolutions, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you've already broken them. So, let me offer you a fresh start. Let me offer all of us a fresh start. Make it a goal in 2024 to meaningfully thank and encourage in a Christ-centered way every person that serves you in this church. Every person that willingly serves you, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how private, no matter how public, resolve, as the psalmist would say, I will As Mr. Edwards said, I resolve by the grace of God and for the by the grace of God and for the glory of Christ. Resolve to make it a goal in 2024 to meaningfully thank and encourage every person who serves you in this church. You got 11 months, you got 48 weeks, plus. 22 community groups and all the fellowship you're doing in your home. Make it part of your fellowship. See, that's what makes our fellowship. That's what, that's what turns our times with one another in the homes and out and about on a Friday night. That's what turns it from just pure socializing to biblical Christ-centered koinonia, fellowship is when we are pointing one another to Christ and recognizing God's goodness to them in all the ways that we see it. I'm not saying you have to write a song about anybody, okay? (laughs) Don't, 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 Don't take it literally. You don't have to write a song about Pastor Tim. You don't have to write a song about your community group leader, although Rick might enjoy that, right? (laughs) We'll leave the songwriting to Deborah and Barack. But how can you grow? How can we grow? And loving those in our church by praising God for them privately and publicly. Second, praise the Lord for his power. Now, now this, this song, like I said, is upward for sure. If you weren't here last week, uh, let me remind everybody the situation for God's people was aptly described in chapter 4, verse 3. Look at it. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had nine, for Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. And notice what it says, and he oppressed the people of Israel. It's not just he oppressed them, he oppressed them cruelly for 20 years. Jabin cruelly oppressed God's people for 20 years before this battle happened. And we get an idea of what life must have been like for them in verse 6. Look what it says. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. And the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. In fact, if you go down to verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel. It was so, it was so devastating for the Israelites. I remember the very first time we traveled to Mexico. 
so many people said, okay, well, listen, be careful. Stay on the main highway. Don't speed. Keep a low profile because you never know what's going to happen. Mexico can be a dangerous place to travel. And it's not just Mexico. We can look in the Middle East, and you've seen in some of these wars that have happened over the past, convoys getting attacked and ambushed. There are dangerous places in this world to travel. Well, it was a hundred times worse for Israel traveling in their own country. The Canaanites were everywhere. They were increasingly controlling everything. When it says um, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways, the idea there was many scholars believe what was going on was the Canaanites would, you know, they, they, were, they were extorting the Israelites. Huge tolls to get through. Or just pillaging. Whatever they were doing, commerce, trading, whatever, they, they, they would just take it all. They would attack them. In other words, it was dangerous for Israel to travel on the main Roads, And so if they were going to do commerce, if they were going to get out of their villages, that they had a choice to make. You traveled, with your, you traveled with a risk. So you didn't travel. You stayed in your village. If you dare ventured out, you took the back roads and you hoped for the best. And of course, that meant that trade and commerce for the, for the Israelites virtually ceased. They were in bad sorts. In verse 8, it says we are, we are told that Israel is out shield or spear, simply meaning their military was woefully unequipped to take on the enemy. Their desperation, again, is laid bare in verse 9. When Deborah simply says, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. In other words, this was a no, this was an impossible situation. Well, it was an impossible situation. But God worked. We looked at the details of his work last week. Notice what it says this week in verse 4. Lord, when you, out, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom... The earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Look at verse 21. The torrent Kaishon, which is a, a large river, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishon, swept them away. They say this battle occurred during the dry season, which gave Sisera, and if you don't know who that is, Go back and read last week's. He was, he was the king of Canaan's general. He's the one who led 900 chariots against God's people. Sisera believed that his 900 chariots would annihilate Israel's army. But God had other plans. These verses tell us that God sent a tremendous storm. And this storm 
turned the Kaishan River into a raging torrent, which in turn turned their battlefield, which would have been just north of the Sea of Galilee, it turned their battlefield into a swamp. Now, what does that mean for iron chariots? This is how Israel won. This is how they won the battles they should have never won. The chariots, the mighty chariots of iron, were either stuck in the mud or they were swept away, perhaps much like Pharaoh's chariots as the Red Sea crushed in on them. This is why Sisera, this explains last week why Sisera got off his chariot and fled by foot. His chariot, he either got, it got thrown off and it was washed away or it was stuck in the mud. And he said, well, I'm a sitting duck. And so he ran. God commanded the weather to give his people victory. God did that. God commanded the rain to fall and flood the land. He commanded the river Kaishan to rise and pour over its banks, sweeping the chariots away. God did that. And so we, we like to explain these kind of things in the Bible in natural terms, right? Well, it was a freak storm. Actually, if you go back in history, you know, it was that time of the year, you know, monsoons. No, this was the dry season. <laughs> but we like, to, we like to talk about these things as a, a freak accident or being in the right place at the right time or an amazing coincidence or a stroke of luck. And it's, na- it's, it's understanding. We, we are prone, we're prone to this because we are naturally averse to the supernatural. But, but doesn't, doesn't that deny the very nature of the Christian life that we live? I mean, we, we don't live a natural life. The Christian life is a supernatural life. We are born of the Spirit, John 3, 8. We are empowered for this life by the Spirit, Ephesians 3, 16. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with evil forces, Ephesians 6, 12. Life in Christ, the life of the church is undeniably supernatural. Now, we can't explain all of that. And indeed, we have to be careful with some of that. But the life of a Christian, according to the Bible, is supernatural. And if you're here this morning and you struggle with that reality, I encourage you to dig deep. Study the word. Because you won't thrive as you should spiritually if you struggle with the supernatural aspect of the Christian life. That's what we see here. God acted supernatural. God promised he would give them the victory. Remember chapter 4? Deborah said, Brock, go, get up. The Lord will, will give Sisera into your hands. And he did. Israel trusted him by following 
the Lord into battle, and they were victorious against all odds because he was faithful. Now, you know what? This is a bit ironic, this whole storm thing, because the God of Canaan, Baal, was the God of storms. Isn't that ironic? He was the God of storms. But here's the deal. Israel's God is the one true and living God who alone can save his people, even if it means commanding the storms. And no Baal could ever stop him. No Baal could ever stop him. That's what, that's what we see in verse 4 and verse 5. In fact, look at verse 5. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. I said earlier that the battle of Judges took place just north of the Sea of Galilee. Well, do you see that place in, in verse 4? Lord, when you went out from Seir, Seir was the mountainous region south of the Dead Sea. Probably somewhere in that area was Mount Sinai. And so the imagery here is awesome. It's powerful. The imagery here in verse 4 and 5 is that God marched north. He marched up from Sinai to do what? To fight for his people. The titles in verse 5, the one from Sinai and, and the God of Israel, it, it, they, it's Yahweh. This is Yahweh. Israel's covenant-keeping God leading his people into the battle of Baal's people. Remember Baal, the god of the storm? No, no, Yahweh is the god of the storm. This is the same one that delivered Israel from Pharaoh's army and his mighty chariots at the Red Sea. And he has come again to deliver his people from Sisera, and once again, his chariots, just as he promised. We get to Judges 5, and we see the covenant-keeping God of their fathers, once again, redeeming and delivering his people. Why? Because they finally figured out that it's important to live for his glory? No, because he's a faithful God. He is faithful to his word. And on that day, as the song begins, on that day, God saved his people. And their response, their response was not to go out and plan for the next war. Their response was not to, to fortify themselves and create a dome to protect them. Their response was to sing of his greatness and their salvation. He has done the impossible for them. Is that where you are this morning? Do you find yourself in an impossible situation? The doctor can't tell you what's wrong with you. A relationship seems beyond reconciliation and restoration. A family member or a friend continues 
to be unresponsive to the gospel. A besetting sin is owning you. Loneliness is destroying you. Life is just too big. It's overwhelming. Listen, don't give up on God. Hold tightly to Jesus. You, you may say, I believed God for so long and nothing is changing. The scripture would speak back to you and say, keep believing. <laughs> keep believing. That's what Hebrews 4 says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast. To our confession. What confession? That God is the sovereign God of the universe. Whose plans for me will not be thwarted. And that promise is mine. It's yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In whom I am hidden for eternity. Not by might or merit. But simply by faith. That I have by the grace of God. That confession That Christ in him crucified is sufficient for you. That Christ in him crucified is that the tomb is empty and he's interceding for you right now. He is preparing a place for you right now. That confession. When waiting on God seems endless, don't give. Up, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and praise him for your salvation. And for those around that person, don't underestimate how God loves to use you pointing out, hey, I know you feel hopeless But Christ is in you, and here's how I know. They go together. We need to hear that. We need to say that. Finally, praise the Lord for his purposes. Notice verse 31. I want you to see how this ends. So so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun. He rises in his might. It's, it's, it's not on the surface, but if you just think, you don't have to think very long or hard, but if you just think about what's being said here, oh, it reminds us of God's salvation and what is coming. Do you remember the imagery of God going up from Mount Sinai in verse 4 and 5 to fight for his people? That day, 3,000 years ago, points us to a day when God will destroy all his enemies once and for all. And that day was inaugurated when God came down. (laughs) In Judges 5 and Judges 4 and 5, he went up. 
but he would come down. He would come down. He would condescend to us by sending not another imperfect judge who can't ultimately save God's people, but his perfect son who came to us willingly to win our salvation at the cost of his very life. While we were still weak, Romans 5, 6 says, like Israel. And while we were still enemies, Romans 5, 10, like the Canaanites. Yeah, we're Israel and the Canaanites all in one in this text. We were weak and we were his enemies. When we were that, our Redeemer, he didn't come through an over, he didn't come to us through an overwhelming storm. He came down from the throne of God to a hill called Calvary where he endured the ultimate storm, the storm of God's holy wrath that is on the count of our sins, where he bled and he died for our forgiveness that you might live in him, not just with hope for that day coming in heaven, but for today. Hope for today. He is our hope in death and life. And by faith in him, by faith in our great warrior, we have complete salvation. The judges, Israel could never get true, lasting rest. We have it. We have true rest in Jesus Christ. We have complete victory because God is our sovereign Redeemer. Listen, if you're here this morning and you, you're going, I don't even know what that means. I want to show you something. Look at verse. Look at verse 28. This is Sisera's mother, okay? Sisera was the general, the Canaanite general who was killed by Jael. Listen, look at, look at this picture. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? And then in verse 29 and 30, she makes excuses. Oh, he must be doing this. Oh, he must be doing that. But she's longing and hoping that he will come back. Sisera was killed, but his mother kept looking and waiting for him to come home. This is a pathetic picture of the world looking for hope where there is no hope, <laughs> hoping that things will change, hoping that all will turn out right. This is life apart from Christ. Instead, turn from your empty idols. You, what you need more than whatever you think you need today, if you don't know Jesus, and even if you do know Jesus, what you need most right now is Jesus. And he is accessible to you. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing to figure out. You simply respond to the Spirit's work in your heart by faith, saying, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord. Save me now. Hide me in the cleft of your Son, Jesus Christ. The Savior of all hope. For the Christian, this is our song. 
For the Christian, our song to sing is the gospel. It's the only song that we have to sing. Our whole, your whole life is a song. It's a song that declares the greatness and the goodness of God that has come to you in Jesus Christ. And we sing it together in love and unity and gratitude and eager expectation for the day, for the day our Lord and Savior appears. And that heavenly rest will finally and fully and forever be upon us. If I can have the worship team come up. Let me leave you with this. Is this the song that you're singing with your life? The song of the grace of Jesus Christ. Whether that is recognizing it in other people or it is appropriating it in your own life, in every area of your life. Is this the song you are singing in your relationships, in your hardships, in your sufferings, on your best hair day, to quote Jerry Bridges, and on your worst hair day? This is the only song we have to sing. There is no other song. The writer of Hebrews was clear. You shrink back from this great salvation, well, there is nothing to shrink back to. <laughs> There's no place to go from here. This is the only song that you have to sing, and it is a glorious song. It is a sufficient song. You can and you should sing this to your heart and one another. God has saved you. He has made you part of his church. He is with you. He has promised to never leave you. He is working all things for your good right now, even those things that are bad and you can't understand. He is sufficient for your needs and he has promised to come back for you. This, this is our song. Barry Webb, as he ends his chapter, his commentary on this chapter, he says, so choose to sing. Deborah Brock chose to sing. I will sing. Choose to sing. Sing this kind of song. It glorifies God and edifies those with whom you sing it. And if Israel had reason to praise God for delivering them, how much more do we, who are the beneficiaries of the great victory God has won for us in Jesus Christ, if that doesn't start us singing, what will? Let's stand and sing.